do you happen to know what couples typically argue about the most or what you've seen in your experience? Money. Yes. Right. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Primary Care. I'm your host, Dr. Hendricks. <laughs> this episode of Primary Care is sponsored by Rougiette Health, more than just an ED treatment. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Primary Care Podcast. My name is Dr. Tyler. I'm Dr. Marcy Gleason, not the same kind of doctor. I'm a PhD in social psychology, and I'm a professor at UT Austin in the Human Development and Family Sciences Department. And I study couples and how they cope with stress and social support and various other things relating to couples. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I was also reading a little bit about your bio that you're also into a specific type of relationship stressors with cancer. But I did that work actually when I lived in Detroit yeah. at Carmona's Cancer Institute. And so I worked with behavioral cancer group there. We looked at several different factors and how patients received information from doctors and how doctors provided that information. Heartbreaking, but wonderful study of where they videotaped parents as their children were receiving treatments for cancer and how they comforted the children and what was most effective in Comforting the Children. A paper that I was an author on was about what influences question asking during conversations with oncologists. So people would often already be diagnosed with cancer when they right. came to the Cancer Institute and they were coming from around the area to you know speak to an expert and get a treatment plan and confirmation of their diagnosis. The group I was with would give permission to videotape those wow. meetings sure. and then we would go and watch them and code them behaviorally for, for different aspects of it. So for instance, this is an opportunity for people to ask their doctor questions. And what we found is that when people had family members in the room, there were many more questions asked mm. than if they didn't have family members in the room. That's good. And some of that is the family members are asking questions. Right. But in general, it was like, you know, having that support system apparently seemed to help people feel comfortable asking questions. And unfortunately, that meant that people who couldn't have family members with them asked fewer questions, mm -hmm. right? And so they're getting less information. There's less people also to Support. retain that information, yeah. right? And to be able to use it later because you're getting a ton of information in those meetings and it's overwhelming yep. and it's extremely stressful. And so just how important it can be to have family members, friends, whomever with you when you're having these big conversations with your doctor because a person who's been diagnosed with cancer is very likely to be completely overwhelmed by that. For sure. And you know, it's not that they're not going to get a ton of opportunities to talk to the oncologist, yeah. you know. And unfortunately, what we saw was that, you know, certain categories of patients were much less likely to be able to have somebody with them because they were in, you know, maybe in a lower income bracket right. and their family members couldn't take time off from work or it was much harder for, to get transportation and things like this. So, so you know, sort of the people who are already at a disadvantage in the situation right. put at a further disadvantage because the people that might be there to support them weren't able to be there okay. to support them. It's not that they don't have the right. support system. It's just they weren't there. It was that the support system couldn't be there. I can kind of relate to a little bit of what you've studied recently. My grandma actually was diagnosed with bladder cancer about two years ago. Prior to that, she had been extremely healthy. So she had never really even taken medication. The last time she had been in a hospital was when she gave birth to my dad. So many, many years. She was probably, I think she was 88 when she was diagnosed. I, I could relate to the doctors treating her that way because we see, you know, very similar cases constantly. You assume an older person has been in the hospital many times, but she, like you mentioned, was extremely overwhelmed by the whole process. Didn't even know what it meant to be in the hospital at that age. She immediately thought she was going to be dying in a very short period of time. And so in that, you know, two weeks of being in the hospital and not knowing what was going on, 
even though she was interacting with her oncologists and her um, other providers, she ended up getting so deconditioned she had a pulmonary embolism, everything you could imagine that went wrong. Then she went into AFib, and so she became less of a candidate for surgeries that could have maybe been helpful in the process. And even as a physician, I had trouble understanding what questions to ask, and my family certainly did too. It was just a really difficult experience. I'd walked away with that trying to figure out how can I, you know, prepare other people out there for this and kind of, you know, even myself, I, you don't think of your own demise, you know, we, we try not to think in that that capacity, but maybe we should be a little bit more prepared for if that was to happen to us, what questions should we ask? Who should we go to? How should we feel, you know? But in regards to the studies that you did, what were the some of the conclusions that you found? You mentioned that obviously having family members there increased question asking and certainly did for my grandma. She wouldn't have even known where to start. But did you notice maybe anything about like the time that the providers were spending with the patients either? I'm not sure if that was included in your study. Well, the finding that I was a lead author on was looking at when the family member and the patient agreed on what the doctor was recommending. What we found was that if the patient and the family members agreed, they were less likely to follow doctor recommendations. Wow. Um, but if they had disagreement, then they were more likely. I think that it has to do with the fact that when there's disagreement between them, there's like a wedge for the doctor to get in, right? right? <laughs> but is there like kind of a united front? Right. Even if they're on board, it might be harder for, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's almost like it's easier <laughs> for the doctor to work in a divide and conquer situation. Sure. But what I will say about that is our goal is like, you know, we want people following the doctor's recommendations. I will also say though, that as someone who has now had two children and had, you know, have had various health issues come up in my family's life and, and other things. I think there's a lot to be said for not just listening and doing exactly what your doctor Absolutely. tells you, but pushing back on things at times yes. and asking questions and just, you know, doctors are experts and that's true, but experts are not infallible. I certainly know this as, as a professor, you know, I make mistakes, research studies turn out to not be replicable. You know, like sure. there's, there's a lot of things that don't line up all the time. People right. don't always know what the best choice is. And and something that I think that is good for people to keep in mind, and we saw this a lot with doctors, is they very, very, very much wish to extend the life of their patients. Sure, exactly. And that's wonderful. That's what we want doctors to do. <laughs> right. However, sometimes that motivation, I think, can cause them to make recommendations that when weighed by the patient about how it's affecting their life, it's not a good trade-off for the patient, right? right? So classic example of not one I saw in my research, but one that a friend of mine experienced was that his wife had been diagnosed with cancer and had and was now was at this point declared cancer-free. And her doctor had recommended that she take this medication, you know, because this medication decreased the likelihood of cancer coming back by 50%. The medication was making my friend's wife extremely ill, right? Mm -hmm. So she was nauseous all the time. She was uncomfortable. It was really hurting her quality of life. Sure. He happened to be a psychologist like myself, and he actually went and looked at the primary research of the research record and was reading through it. And he realized that like, the drug absolutely decreased the likelihood of recurrence by 50%. That was what the research suggested. But the recurrence rate was already really low. Right. And I'm not going to be able to tell you what the numbers are, but let's right. pretend it was like 10%. Sure. And it went to 5%. Now, when they had that information, they were like, okay, mm -hmm. it's true. Not taking this medication puts me at higher risk for the cancer coming back. Mm -hmm. But the risk of that happening is low. And I am being very negatively affected by the medication. Right. And so they then made the decision that she wouldn't take that medication. Now, I don't think that the doctor was wrong. I sure. think it would have been great to contextualize it for them. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that they're doing a lot. We're all doing a lot. We don't all have the statistics of the papers that 
have these recommendations at our fingertips and are able to be like, oh, well, you know, this, you know, of course. But that is the kind of thing where it's like, that is kind of the point. It's like your doctor is treating a lot of people and they care a lot. And their goal is to keep you healthy and to keep you alive. People have a lot of different goals. Yeah. Right. And a lot of different needs. And so, you know, all of us keeping in mind as patients and supporters of patients that like there there are many outcomes or many things that we're trying to create. in our lives. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, as a physician, a lot of times things are just considered standard of care and you're just kind of accepting that this is what my, the, my peers do. This is what's recommended by, you know, whatever medical specialty body sort of governs your decisions. And you just kind of say, okay, I'm going to do this because it's what is standard of care. I haven't really <laughs> completely looked at all of the literature. Like you How mentioned, could you? There's right, so it's much. Right. But yeah, I think always putting into context is it's something to, to kind of keep in our minds as providers is, all right, did, did I explain this well enough? Because for me, what I always try to explain to every patient, whether it's starting a new blood pressure medicine or even checking a lab result, is let's just talk about the risks versus the benefits. And let's determine for you what is more important. Are the benefits more important? Are the risks more important? And then we go from there. And so that's kind of my strategy, but I definitely can see how it can get a little bit complicated as the statistics and data make things a little cloudy sometimes. I think they do. And it's really hard to make the decision that puts somebody at greater risk, right? right? Like that's a much harder thing to do than to take the easy option, both for the person who's being treated and the person who's doing the treatment, right? Like how terrible it must feel to not recommend this medication and then have the person come back with cancer. Like there's not an easy answer, but I think it's very important for us all to know that like, oh, you know, ultimately we're in charge of our treatment. Exactly. And there are very small circumstances in which we aren't able to, you know, make our choices and to remember that because I have a tendency to just do what people tell me to, which is terrible, right? But I'm such a rule follower and I'm certainly a people pleaser too. And so, you know, the idea of being like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's like, how could you say that? You know, how could you do that? And like, and actually my husband's really good about sort of pushing on me to be like, no, you know, get a second opinion. That's something that I think is so hard for people to do. They feel like they're going to insult their doctor. And I really tell them that if your doctor is insulted by it, they're not a good doctor. A second opinion is a great idea anytime that you have a serious condition or they are recommending hospital stay, an extensive treatment, a second opinion, get a second opinion. It's just double checking your work. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about all the times where you're going to check your work, right? That have a lot fewer consequences than this. (laughs) Exactly. Right? I think it's too important finding a physician that has a similar style to how you respond well. You know, for me, I let all my patients know I'm not an authoritarian. This is not my style. I am not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to let you know what I would personally do. I'm going to let you know what the data says, but let's talk about it. Let's make a conversation. And so we can come to this conclusion together. I always say I'm a partner in your health with you. We are partners in your medical journey, regardless of what you're here for. I don't want you to feel as though I'm telling you what to do. I think sometimes being a little bit younger appearing than some of my colleagues also helps because a lot of times my older patients are like, what do you mean? You know, they're not, they're, they're much more easily able to communicate their concerns. I think they don't see me as an authoritarian because of my presentation, which I love. I totally, that's one of the, my favorite parts of, of my interactions with patients is I get treated like I want to be treated, which is a partner. You know, we're working on this together. But I do want to make a little shift because I know I can get some free relationship advice <laughs> from you today. <laughs> so I'm going to take advantage of that. So if you want to talk about some of the other research you've done and work you've done with relationships and stressors, maybe things that you really enjoy. And I'm sure I have some stories that I can relate to. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, 
And specifically, I'm interested in how support from our partners can buffer us from daily stressors that we encounter, often in the context of larger stressors. So if we think about stress as a concept, right? Like, you know, Americans, we're always talking about how stressed we are. I do too. I am not judging. <laughs> like, like I, you know, yeah. people ask me how you are and how I am and I'm like, oh, I'm so stressed. Okay? <laughs> and it's like, oh, what are you so stressed about? You know, like, did you just get diagnosed with cancer? No. Right. Like, you know, no, I'm running late to the next place I need to be or, yes. you know, or I need to get groceries and I need to do this and like, you know, and this is due and all the things that we're all juggling. Right. And we're all stressed. You know, how do our partners help us with these things? Sure. And how do we help our partners? The social support research had found just universal positivity of social support, both within close relationships, like romantic relationships, and also just generally in social networks. Right. So like lots of research that shows that if I think I'm somebody who has social support available to me and that I've gotten social support in the past, you know, I, I think of myself as someone who's socially supported, I will live longer. I will be happier. Some have even shown it's related to like income, like yeah. it's really impressive. The mortality one is particularly impressive. If a meta-analysis, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but the, just the idea of like when you look across a bunch of studies that have examined sort of the same questions in similar but different ways and you kind of try to average across them, the effect of, of having high quality social support in someone's life on mortality risk is way stronger than the effect of BMI on mortality risk wow. and about as strong as not smoking, depending on how you're measuring it, equally as strong as not smoking. Well, first of all, thank you for that great explanation of what a meta-analysis is. I've made it through four years of undergrad medical school and still could not have explained it better. So that was perfect. Well, I have to explain it for <laughs> right. a living. So, you know. Hey folks, my podcast Primary Care is sponsored by Rougiette Ready, the latest pharmaceutical advancement in erectile dysfunction. This is a sublingual compounded treatment using three ingredients, sildenafil, tadalafil, and apomorphine, and it works up to five times faster faster than pills and chewables. We give you a promo code primary care for 20% off your first order and free shipping. Now let's get back to uh, the content. I've been with my partner now for four years and I always talk to him about how I, and I tell all my friends and, and family members that without him, I wouldn't be where I'm at today as far as my business, our business really, the things that we've accomplished together. And I often think about where we would be if, if we hadn't met and I can 100% relate to this study. I feel like he is making me happier on a daily basis. He is certainly making sure my stress is under control and that I'm able to stay on task and that things are just things are just easier when he's around. And that's probably why we are together most of the time. Do you find that there's a problem with people being too codependent in any of these studies? Has that ever been an issue or, or created a, a negative result? Because I may be codependent, but I don't want to change that. <laughs> Well, first I want to say that, you know, that statement, like if you guys were ever married and decided to get divorced, definitely can use that to yes. show that he deserves an equal share. Yes, he does. I, I completely agree. I've told him that many times. We're not married yet, but I said, if you ever left, I, I, I did. I even was like, I'm glad this is on camera because everything I have truly is half his. That's lovely. So. Um, I think that's great. I haven't looked at codependency. There is work on sort of pathological codependency. And I would say like almost anything you can think of in too high of amounts sure. is going to be toxic, yes. right? Like you can kill yourself by drinking too much water, Yeah. right? And by <laughs> drinking too little, right? Exactly. Like I feel like almost anything we're going to come up with uh, in a psychological characteristic is going to fall along that thing where there is some optimal level. It might be that high levels of it generally tend to be good, but at some point you're going to get to 
to where like this is not <laughs> this is not yeah. functional anymore. So right. and and codependency I don't think it has to be out at that extreme, right? Like sure. there's certainly some negative aspects of codependency. But what you're describing of like liking being together <laughs> and um and supporting each other and enjoying each other's company, I think you're fine. Like I, I don't think you like you know like <laughs> I think basically that's what people want, right? right? They're like they're not like I want a partner who I sometimes like. <laughs> Right? They're like, I want a partner who I like, yeah, you know, yeah. and who like I have fun with, you know, yeah. and of course there are times where we're not enjoying our partners, right? Sure. And that is totally normal and often necessary because if we are never maybe having conflict in our relationships, maybe that is an indication that like we are not expressing any will or our partner yes. isn't, right? That right. one of us is just ruling this situation exactly. and not really allowing the other person to have a voice, right? That, yeah. And maybe when you're in the throes of love, that is okay. But eventually that might be really problematic for both people, yes. right? But that doesn't yes. sound like what you're describing. No, I'm we, not uh, accusing you of that. <laughs> no, we certainly have our, our bickering moments. But I, the, actually, I sort of love them because he's very similar to me. He's a bit hard-headed, just like I am. He's very vocal with his opinions, just like me. So when we do have an argument, it's usually quite entertaining. <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like we're too, like, we always debate. It's like more of a debate than an argument, right? And so we, we really do... <laughs> And, and people ask us too because we're together all the time like do you guys argue you always seem so happy absolutely but it's usually over like who left the toilet seat up or you know the silliest things right that's that's usually the, the basis of our arguments which I always at the end of it we're like why are we arguing for three hours over who left the toothpaste cap off <laughs> but again <laughs> it leaves some passion there it shows that we do sort of have that uh, intensity of liking to be right which I like about him I want him to you know be confident in, in his thoughts and himself and I don't want to dominate the relationship by any means. And I think he thinks the same of me. So I think, yeah, there is some healthy sort of bickering that can occur in a, in a normal relationship. Um, and it gives you practice for when yes. it's maybe something bigger, right? Yeah. The idea that like there is something that comes up that is frustrating or annoying or, you know, or, or more upsetting sure. for a partner and they haven't had any conflict that can be really scary you exactly. don't know how to navigate it like there's something to be said for having some practice yeah, right absolutely. and there's actually research that suggests that is that like yeah couples who um have some practice resolving disagreements and things like this when they encounter bigger stressors can be better prepared for them right exactly. and better able to handle them because i think with all things in life we need practice yes. right like there are very few things that we don't need practice yeah and we argue differently too i'm very much like i want to address the issue have it completely resolved tied up in a bow and then like pretend like it's dead and move on you know and he likes to take time and like you know let his emotions process which totally makes sense when we're in the argument it does not make sense to me at all but you no, know I'm more turning, like you <laughs> turning around I'm like I get it you want to process things my argument for why I argue this way is that I don't like to waste time I'm like we have the rest of the day to enjoy each other and there's still sunshine out I don't want to argue anymore I want to enjoy the rest of my day with you and uh, usually that doesn't help <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah because you know. it's really hard to tell somebody how they should feel exactly. and then for them to feel that way right, right? Um, so it's yeah yeah I I think, but it's also very hard to allow our partners to process their way because yeah. it can get in the way of us processing our way. And, you know, and so finding a happy medium or somebody who, you know, you can work that out with yeah. 
that's one of the things that we do. That's why we date and why we explore. And it's like, when you think about who it is we might end up with, it's, you know, it's for many of their positive traits. Right. It's because we're attracted to them. It's because of similarities. It's all these things, right? But it's also probably because their annoying things aren't as annoying to us as other people's <laughs> right. annoying things, or they are to other people, right? Like none of us is not annoying. Right. Like, and, sure. and when we are together and you are living in a house with that person, there's going to be times where they're going to, you know, leave the toilet seat up and yep. deny it the liar you know um but um but you know you just have to you know it's like okay well you know do i like this annoying trait of leaving the toilet seat up or do i prefer the annoying trait of like leaving their socks on the floor you know what? Yeah. like and there's obviously bigger ones right yeah but we're sure. but that's what being partners with somebody is it's like a constant negotiation yes most of us would like it to be a pleasant negotiation <laughs> that doesn't end up in like lots of standoffs or right. winners and losers and that it doesn't feel so much like a constant negotiation exactly it's interesting too when we argue i'm not a big fan of arguing so i want just to go into it to be as strategic and get our point across and not harm each other as best as possible like you mentioned i think when you argue you do learn you learn how to navigate those situations and how to be maybe less hurtful with getting your point across or maybe where the trigger areas are where sometimes you do want to go for the jugular but we have some rules that we're still we you know they're always changing but number one we don't call each other names that is like a big one and we we figured that out because in arguments we would call each other names <laughs> that i'm really that's i mean on one level it's like oh you shouldn't call your partner names like i know right like well i mean i guess it right. depends on the names bad right. names right yes, like bad negative names. names right um in one way it sounds obvious but right two people do it yeah, right and it's exactly. really hard sometimes not to it right is. so there's a researcher that well there's many researchers who have done this but um, observed couples in a lab having a conflict right sure. and and coded behaviors that they are engaging in and identified four that he argues are particularly toxic sure. conflict behaviors and one of them is contempt and also what they would call criticism and it involves very much calling your partner names right. the one I tell my students is so hard to avoid actually is the nonverbal contempt that we show, Ooh. which is like rolling your eyes. I do that all the time. And like, <laughs> I mean, it can be really hard. It's like, it's more about defensiveness. Just like, you know, you're reacting to somebody being upset with you, but oh, you know, it is such an instinct and we've all practiced it as teenagers with our mm -hmm. parents extensively. So we're very good at it. <laughs> and we bring that to these other relationships. And yeah, so I'm just saying like, good job. Yes. Because that literally is one of the communication tactics I talk about with my students to avoid is name yeah. calling. We've gotten really open too with talking about while we're arguing an example being rolling your eyes. I roll my eyes all the time. Like I feel like I just walked down the street and roll my eyes. And so when I do it now in an argument, I'm always like, Ugh. I did not just roll my eyes because I know that it does not help the situation. And it's like a constant. It truly is one of the things I've been working on the most. And he's not even bothered by it. He's never even brought it up. But I just don't like it. I don't like when he does it. And so I can't comment, don't roll your eyes at me because I know that's not something I can accomplish. Well, that in and of itself makes you, I think, uh, you're ahead of the game there. Because I don't think that hypocrisy in criticizing our partners is all that uncommon. True. So good job. And that's the thing, though, when you're going to debate and be a good in a good argument i can't have him use my <laughs> tactics against me you know i can't tell him stop doing this he's gonna be like you just did that two seconds ago you know so and he's good at that he will pick up all the clues which honestly is an enjoy enjoying part of arguing is that i'm not arguing with a wall or someone who's just like uh we kind of 
get to see our, our brains flex a little bit sometimes. And I know it sounds silly, but we don't argue over very serious things. So it ends up usually being quite comical at the end. We don't have a lot of couple friends that we talk about arguing with. So sometimes we're like, is this normal? Like what do couples typically argue about? Because we literally argue about forgetting like who was the last person to take the garbage out or, you know, those little silly things that come out of nowhere. And because of life stressors, especially me, I'm a much, I think I let stress get to me a lot more than he does. So I'm a little bit easier to ignite, but it's always over something silly. Do you happen to know what couples typically argue about the most or what you've seen in your experience? Money. Yes. I know I tell my students some of the top things. So money is a really big one. Mm-hmm. Jealousy and things around behavior with other people. When we're talking about serious conflict. Those are things. Right. Consideration, whether or not your partner is being considered of you. Right? right. And I think some of the stuff that you're talking about falls into that category sure. of just, you know, are you thinking about how your actions impact the other person who's living in the house with you? Right. You know, and it can be hard to do that. Your partner might really care about some things that you don't care about. Right. right? And couples make choices all the time along these lines, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just go with a toilet seat being yeah. left up. One person really doesn't care. Right. right. Like it's not that they want it <laughs> up. Right. They right? just don't care. They just don't care. They've exactly. never thought about it. It's not a thing for them. <laughs> right. The other person cares a lot, right? Yes. yes. Is this person going to start closing the toilet or is this person going to not care? Both are valid, right? right? But the couple basically has to negotiate that. The problem, I think, comes when neither one of them is willing to move on it, right? Exactly. You know, I think when people are willing to, okay, I will try to care about this, but you need to give me time to learn to care about it, right? right? Because I can't just be like, I now. (laughs) care right right? like it's not going to turn on a dime like that yeah you're going to have to remind me but you know over time i can build this habit up right um and being willing to do that but also this person the other person giving them grace in it right yes like recognizing they aren't like going in there and being like i'm gonna leave this up to annoy my partner (laughs) right like like they're not like this isn't like some sort of you know we're starting from a basis of this is a reasonably healthy relationship (laughs) That they're not doing it to annoy their partner. So both people just kind of leaving space and giving grace to their partner to both mention that they're making the mistake Mm -hmm. without it being some indictment of them, right? (laughs) Um, And the other person, you know, making an effort and getting to the point where it's a habit. Um, Habits are hard to form, right? And they're hard to break. Your partner isn't going to be able to break a habit that they've had for years overnight, and they're not going to be able to make a habit that they don't have overnight. Yeah, I think this is really important. We actually talk about this a lot because I'm usually the one who has uh, a perspective that I like the toilet seat put down and Gabriel's more like, eh, as long as it's clean, <laughs> you know, as long as it you know, that, that doesn't really matter to me. I totally agree. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter to me. I'm trying to be also more open to the fact that just because I like things done a certain way and the other person, Gabriel, doesn't mind either way, maybe I should just let it be. And I think that has the, been the hardest thing for me is just to learn to just let things be because it doesn't really affect me whether the toilet seat is up or down. I just put it down when it's my time to put it down. <laughs> so learning how to let it go and let it be and 
not let these little things bother me. Has that ever been a, a strategy that you've seen other couples try to take? I mean, it's very difficult for me. <laughs> uh, sort of along those lines, actually, another colleague of mine would tell me about how her husband and her had been married for decades since this point. There is a tendency in long-term relationships for the arguments to be over the same thing, yes. right? And, and there are some common recurring themes. Again, money is often a part of a relationship conflict, but, but there are other things that come up. And in their case, the one that I remember was about how clean a house should be. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I will say that I have heard this time and again yeah. from couples, right? A lot of times the people we fall in love with don't have exactly the same right. standards true. of cleanliness or whatever that we do, right? Or the things that they really value being uncluttered or clean or different than the things, you know, it's a compromise, right? Yep. And they had this ongoing conflict that would often result in like really negative feelings and like fights, you know, yep. where they were really upset and mad at each other over the years. And then at some point in time, they came up with a solution that they were both satisfied with, which was honestly, in this case, solved by there being money available for it, which is that they had reached a point in time in their careers and in their marriage where they're like, fine, we will get a cleaner. Yeah, right? for sure. And this had been something that the other partner had not wanted to spend money on, sure. right? But they got to a point where it was affordable and the other partner is very important to them. So they decided they would get a cleaner and that this would be their resolution to it. And they would refer to any fight about the cleanliness of the home. So they found like a decent solution. They would still have arguments about sure. it, right? But as soon as one of them would start the argument or start saying something or the other one would respond, they'd both be like, oh, argument 549. Like we're <laughs> never, that argument is never going to to truly ever end right. and we have had it so many times and we have decided we still want to do this thing called our relationship yes. so let's like let's, we're done there's no it. answer you know I and I think that. that people have a lot of sort of shorthand in their relationships for how to be like you know what this is fine I will say one thing that the research suggests is that it's great to let things go Sure. If they really are little and they're not bothering you. But if it is something that actually bothers you. Right. It's not going to go away. It's not going to go away and it's going to get worse and can fester, right? It can cause yes. problems. So like forgiveness is great in relationships. We see a lot of benefits of forgiveness, but it doesn't always work because if you actually really care about the behavior changing, mm -hmm. you may not, you know, just being like, oh, you know, that really irritates me, but I'll just forget. No, like, you know, yep. especially if it's going to be something that happens again and again, it's really pretty important to express that and deal with the situation. I'm just like kind of going to digest all of this great information we got to process today. So thank you so much for coming. And oh, my pleasure. I love it. I mean, this is what I love. Yeah, like, this is all the stuff I love. I love speaking to professors. I love speaking to teachers. I love just speaking to anyone in education. I have to say that's not something that's said often. It's true. I love talking it's to true. professors. I, I, yeah. <laughs> well, I think in medicine, when I was in medical school, I enjoyed my communication with PhDs more than the MDs. <laughs> Interesting. And I think I've, that stuck with me. I've always found that they were more warm and more uh, education okay. focused. That's and more, almost frightening. <laughs> I know. I know. But I think too, most of them were women, which maybe that helped too. Oh, yeah. But I just had really great PhD leaders in my programs that really left a good impression on me. So, well, And I, uh, very much so. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that we make friends with the people we're around, yeah. like the vast majority of my friends have PhDs and they're wonderful. <laughs> we'll right? bring them in anytime. Yeah. Um, and and 
they're wonderful and warm and lovely. But I do think you are also in a field where it requires a lot of alone time just doing sure. work, right? Yeah. So it doesn't always select for the most extroverted, yes. socially competent <laughs> people, right? Like it's yes. just because it, because <laughs> like the, the things you need to do to get there are not those things, right? right? It's true. And so, not surprisingly, you know, maybe that's why a lot of MDs don't have the best bedside manner true. because totally. to become an MD, it's tough. You're probably not spending as much time socializing as other people. I know. They should have mandatory, like, socialization time in medical school. Let's put that somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, spending your, all of your young adulthood in the library (laughs) researching questions is perhaps not the best way to become, like, a, yeah. yeah. public speaker. (laughs) But anyway, Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much again. Where can our followers find you? I do my lab, which is called the Daily Living Project. They could go to that website that I do a terrible job of keeping up with. But if I'm ever running new studies, I'm hoping to start a study looking at couples as they transition to an empty nest. So I've studied the transition to parenthood quite a bit, and this is a known stressor in relationships. But what we don't know about in relationships is what happens when parents are done with that, right? Which is also a really big um, transition. And so I don't know that your listenership would probably have have a wide variety. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am, again, so thankful for you for coming, and I look forward to your return. (laughs) Well, it was very nice to meet you. Awesome. Thank you. Add us on Instagram at Primary Care Pod. Catch up on past episodes and don't miss out on new ones. Subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify at Primary Care Pod.